0: Well, as Anna has drawn our attention to a number of times now, it's snowing outside. And on this day of snow, this passage from James is bringing the heat. If I were to sum up the passage that we've read in one sentence, it would be this. If you claim to follow Jesus and yet you do not live nor seek to live a life that is consistent with his kingdom, you are a fool. I'll say that again, if you claim to follow Jesus and yet you do not live nor seek to live a life that is consistent with his kingdom, you are a fool. Now, if that upsets you or offends you, I totally understand that. Those are quite strong words. The person you should take that up with though (laughs) is James and not me. Verse 22, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says otherwise you are only fooling yourselves verse 26 if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless these are sharp words and so they lead us to wonder is this james being provocative for the sake of being provocative or is there something deeper at stake here And my conviction on the basis of this passage is this isn't James going for it for nothing. This is James seeking to wake people up. And what you're getting woken up for determines how you get woken up. And here James is waking us up to be the people of God and that takes some sharp words, but it's not provocation for the sake of provocation or just insulting people. It is to get the people of God to wake up and be the people of God in this time. Now that word fool is not just a word that you use for someone who might annoy you or set up a situation looking at the weather and deciding whether or not God loves you on the back of that. No, that's not how the word fool is being used here today. The word fool is being used in continuity with how it's used in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, in our Bibles. And that points to the fact that in the book of James, we see if it were a remix or a mashup between the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus, in particular in the Sermon on the Mount. James is a marriage of these two, the wisdom of old and what God is doing in the inauguration of his kingdom on earth and the life and the teaching of his son. And we get both things here. So to understand what we're going and what we're talking about when it comes to that word fool, we need to head over to Proverbs. And in Proverbs, what the contrast at the heart of that book is the contrast between the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. And we see contrast. They're pitted side by side the whole time. And the headline between them is that the way of wisdom is a way as a way of life that honors God and the way of foolishness functionally disdains God. It writes him off, not necessarily in religious practice, but in the way life is actually lived. Some of how that manifests itself is, with foolishness, it is short-sighted, only concerned about the moment, whereas wisdom has the future in mind, in particular the eternal future, and works that out in the day today. Foolishness is impulse-driven, feelings-based. Wisdom is diligent and stable. And foolishness is opposed to effort, whereas wisdom is spirit-guided effort. I don't just take my word for it. Let's see it in the book of Proverbs itself. So we're going to see a few verses from Proverbs chapter 12. Here is a cross section. Verse 3, wickedness never brings stability, but the godly have deep roots. Verse 11, a hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies has no sense. Verse 16, a fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm when insulted. Verse 19, truthful words stand the test of time, but lies are soon exposed. And my personal favorite from this passage, verse 27 Lazy people don't even cook the game they catch, but the diligent make use of everything they find. There is the contrast between the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. And James is bringing that to bear to what he has to say to this church today. Now, if you recall from last week, Pete did some brilliant scene setting for us. And he showed us that the church that James is writing to is a church that is experiencing persecution. And so we must ask ourselves, If a church is going through persecution, they're already facing a very distressing incident and distressing moment. Why is it that James seeks to speak to them of wisdom of old and the kingdom of God in Jesus in this time? Why isn't he just coming at them with a pastoral blanket? Why is he waking them up to the purposes of God in their time? And to understand this further, we need to go back a bit to James chapter one to some verses that we saw last week. And these, this is them. James chapter one, verses two to f- the start of verse five. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. Now, James recognizes that the believers he's writing to are experiencing suffering. They are dislocated from the lives that they have known, and they find themselves in a situation where they need to grapple to understand what God is doing. It's not evident to them why their choice to follow Jesus is not leading to a life of ease and comfort like they would have hoped for. And James is telling them their suffering is not random, that God can do something in the midst of their something that outweighs the pain of the moment. But for them to latch onto this, they need wisdom for them to latch on to what God is seeking to do in the midst of their suffering, they need wisdom. And why is that? Well, as we've seen, wisdom is attentive to the work of the spirit. It has the eternal in view, and it is not opposed to partnering with the spirit, even in the face of adversity and difficulty. Wisdom perseveres towards spiritual formation. Wisdom recognizes that in the hands of God, our redeemer, that which is adverse to us can ultimately be for our good. Foolishness, on the other hand, does not have any time for that. Foolishness has, in the midst of suffering, its prior concern is always comfort. is always escape. It is always leaving the situation that presents itself with challenges. And as such, the way of foolishness and the way of wisdom in the midst of suffering are diametrically opposed. The call of God to us in this moment is to embrace suffering, not because it's comfortable, it's anything but, but to embrace it and to submit it to the Spirit of God because in the hands of the Spirit of God, that which was meant for our evil turns out for our good. Amen. Amen. So we are looking at the contrast of the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness in the book of James. And the context of suffering is precisely why it's coming to us in this way. Wisdom is here for us, a guide to saving faith. And that is precisely what we're looking at. So we're going to dive into our passage today a bit more. And we're going to use these three words to help us understand the core of this passage. And here are the words. Saving faith in James chapter 1 verses 19 to 27 is concerned with transformation, reproduction, and submission. Transformation, reproduction, and submission. Let's head back to the text, verse 19. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Catch this, human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word, you must do what it says. James has as his object here, the transformation that comes when we put our faith in Jesus. And that's the only way for this to be because Jesus's purposes in us are radical change from the inside out. If you've ever tried to be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to get angry, you will know that this doesn't just happen. You don't get into the heat of the moment where your smart words are on the tip of your tongue and you want to get someone back for something that they've done against you. And it just naturally bubbles up. We need transformation from the inside out to sustain the life of faith, which is evidenced in deeds that God is calling us to. And let's look again at verse 20, because this has, grap- uh, has, grap- has gripped my attention in a particular way, third time's the charm, um, in the course of this week. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. As I've sat with this sentence and pondered it over the week, I've been drawn to consider the life of Moses. Moses in Exodus chapter 2. When we get to Exodus chapter 2, we see Moses and he's still living in Egypt. He's living in the courts of Pharaoh. And he goes to see what's happening in the land of the Hebrews and see how the Hebrews are getting on. And what he sees is not a pretty sight. He happens upon an Egyptian who's mistreating a Hebrew. And in the moment, Moses makes a snap decision and ends up murdering the Egyptian. And I think this verse has something powerful to say, not just to that moment, but to where we find human anger bubbling on the inside of us. And it says this, human anger does not produce the kind of righteousness that God desires. Now, it's not saying human, right, human anger doesn't produce anything. Human anger might produce a lot. It's not even saying human anger might not be justified in the moment. It's not saying that. It's not saying that human anger might not get applause from other people. But when it comes to the righteousness that God desires, human anger is not the way. And why is that? Because human anger relies for its fuel in the self, whereas the kind of righteousness God desires always arises first from right relationship with God. Again, it's not a tick box exercise of some right things and some wrong things and hoping the balance works out a particular way. It is coming to God and living from the overflow of union with him. In Exodus chapter 2, we see it's a bit of, it's This moment is so beautiful because some of this is what Moses is made for. Moses is made to be the deliverer of God's people. That is some of the purpose and commissioning that is on his life. And yet in this moment, his reliance on self, his lack of self-control, inhibits him from being the person that God is calling him to be. And so from this moment of acting in his own strength, and relying on human anger to produce the justice and righteousness God desires, we see that Moses needs to go through a wilderness experience. Even before the children of Israel are led into the wilderness by Moses, Moses has to flee and go to the wilderness of Midian for 40 years. Because human anger does not produce the kind of righteousness God desires. God needs to work in us a work of transformation that we might be the kinds of people that can do the kinds of things that he's calling us to do. So first, transformation. Next, reproduction and this recognizes that what we do doesn't just flow from what we commit our hands to but it is actually an expression of that which is within us don't just listen to god's word you must do what it says. Verse 27, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you're fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Our works are not production, they are reproduction. And what does this mean? It means, I don't know if you've ever tried again to live out some of this stuff, it's hard. It's hard, it's really hard. What makes this work is union with the spirit of God. The things that we try in our own strength to accomplish can't work. But when we surrender ourselves to the spirit of God, he works the life of Jesus on the inside of us. And how does this happen? How does this happen? God's work of reproduction within us happens day by day. Catch that and hold on to this. What James is enjoining us into is not a radical change in a moment. He's enjoining us to commit to the steady work of the spirit within us day by day, to gradually let down the barriers of our resistance to the spirit that we might allow him do his work. And when we do this gradually, incrementally, but steadily and with conviction and with surety, The spirit of God conforms us to the likeness of Jesus. In order to reproduce the life of Christ from the inside out, the point is that this must happen naturally. And yet for this to come naturally, it must come with practice It must come with consistency. It must come with openness to the spirit of God. I say this recognising that the days that we live through are particularly uniquely challenging. What does it look like to day by day be open to the work of the spirit within us when right now is so hard? I want you to take note of this, family. The days that we are currently living through are uniquely challenging. But it is precisely because they are uniquely challenging, that they are uniquely potent when it comes to our spiritual formation. Again, this isn't just coming off of my head. This is the wisdom of God's word. Second Corinthians chapter four from verse 16 to verse 18. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day day. Four. Our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we do not look at the troubles we can see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. These days are hard and they are hard for each of us in different ways. But the assurance from the spirit of God is that when we open up ourselves to him in this time, when we give ourselves over to him, when we meet with God in the place of suffering, that furnace becomes a place of refinement. And what was meant to destroy you turns out for your good if we let the fire of the spirit work within us consuming that which is not of God in us that we might be the people he wants us to be and the fire burning within us will help us withstand the fire that is burning around us you need fire inside you to get through fire around you and that is what God desires to do with us in this time so Saving faith is concerned with transformation. Saving faith is concerned with reproduction. And finally, saving faith is concerned with submission. Submission. I came across a tweet this week and I thought it was kind of funny. So I'm going to share it with you guys. It went a little something like this. Once COVID is over is starting to sound a lot like when I win the lottery. I'll say that again. Once COVID is over, it's starting to sound a lot like when I win the lottery. I've I've considered that a few different times over the course of this week. And of course, I recognize COVID is grim. As as much as the next person, I cannot wait for this plague to be lifted off of the face of the earth. And may we continue to pray for that. We have the privilege of intercession and we can seek the intervening hand of God in our circumstances. So let's be the people of God and do that, recognizing the evil of this time for so many. And yet, in order for us to do that, we must be so sure of where our faith is placed in the midst of this. See, this statement is fine on a level, but when it speaks to where our faith is, then it cannot work. And I'll take us back to last week. And this was, there was a particularly salient line from Pete's talk, and I'm sure if you were here last week, it still stayed with you. And it went like this. Weak faith and a strong branch is more than enough to save. And today I feel the spirit of God is speaking the exact same thing to us, but from a different angle. The point is still put your faith in Jesus. But here's the different angle. Here's the inversion of that phrase from last week. And it's this strong faith in a weak branch is more than enough to destroy. We have to attend with all seriousness to where we are putting our hope and our confidence in this time. And that'll be the difference between joining in with what God is doing or forfeiting our birthright and letting the enemy run amok with us in this time. You see, because those who put their hope in winning the lottery are leaving their lives open just to chance. And in doing that, that is following the way of foolishness. I looked at a number of stories of people who've won the lotto and there are quite differing outcomes but on the whole those who win experience worse outcomes on the back of winning than they could have imagined beforehand. Those are people's families broke down, some people developed drug issues, some people ended up in more debt than they had been before. Why is that? It's because all of the time we are being formed and we are being formed particularly in the place of affliction and adversity. And when we run out of the training ground that God has us in, seduced by a utopic vision of salvation in anything other than Jesus, it ends up biting us in the long run. There is no salvation in anything else other than Jesus. There never has been, and there never will be. And yes, may the vaccine continue to be rolled out. May people stop dying from COVID. We long for these things to happen. But if we, as the people of God, put our faith in a vaccine before the living son of God to get us through this time, we won't just have lost everything that COVID has taken. We'll have lost the treasure that God meant for us to have in this time. That treasure starts on the inside and it is outworked in actions that betray a confident trust in God. That is the mission of the people of God in this season. That is what the word of God is speaking to us in this time. Now we looked at the story of Moses a few minutes ago. We saw that he had to go through the wilderness in order to be formed into the kind of person that could embark on the mission that God had for him. We see that wasn't the only wilderness experience in Moses' life because, of course, the whole point is that he's to lead the people through another wilderness experience. And yet, because Moses has the benefit of his initial wilderness experience, because he has to let go of striving and scheming and trying to make sense of the purpose upon his life through his own means, he gets to a point where his resistance is broken down and he is able to submit and surrender to what the Spirit of God wants to do in him. And so on the back of his first wilderness experience, his second wilderness experience becomes a progressive terrain and unfolding of the nature of God to him. It becomes a place of the encounter. Moses sees God face to face and becomes transformed by what he sees. And yet Moses is not the only one in the wilderness. The majority of those who leave Egypt and follow him through the wilderness do not experience anything like the kind of transformation that happens inside Moses. And that is because all the way through the wilderness, the people only have their eyes on what's on the other side. What's on the other side, what's to come, I'm uncomfortable. I need to escape this. Get us out of here. What are you doing? Why did you bring us to the wilderness? All through the journey, they only have their eyes on what is to come on the other side, the utopic vision of what is to come and not on what, is, on what God is seeking to do in them in the day to day. And so the majority of them miss out on what God is seeking to do in the day to day because the point of the wilderness is not getting to the other side. The point of the wilderness is God establishing his purposes in you that you might be the kind of person that gets to the other side and doesn't have it distract you away from faith but confirm you in faith. If the Lord answered your deepest prayers in the morning, would that see you more dependent on Jesus or less dependent on Him? These are the questions that we need to open ourselves up to probing, inquiring by the Spirit of God, to look in the mirror and see what He points out to us of ourselves and to submit to Him as He does the deep soul work of conforming us into the likeness of Jesus. It won't always look the way we want it to. It will usually not be uncomfortable, usually not be comfortable, But if we take our eyes off our obsession with comfort, we might actually arrive at formation and confirmation into the image of Jesus. The stakes are so high. The language is sharp, but it's not for something. It is a call for the people of God to be the people of God. And when we do that, when we place our saving faith in Jesus and not in any lesser God or lesser story, lesser savior, we become those who are the people that God desires us to be. And when we become the people God desires us to be, we are the people that the world needs. You see, this, this call to radical counterformation is not us escaping the world. It's us attending to things of first importance, living every single day in light of eternity and the gift that God's given us to experience him in the here and now. And as we do that, we become those who show the way of Jesus to the rest of the world. The world needs the church to be the church. The world needs the church to be the church. So people of God, will we respond to what the Spirit of God is saying to us? Will we commit ourselves daily to opening up to the work of the Spirit in us knowing that religion and the trappings of church and just being involved with stuff for the sake of it are not what God is calling us to. And yet actions dislocated from a center in Jesus are also not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to transformation. He's calling us to reproduction of his life within us. He's calling us to submit to him.